And I think for some people who have severe autoimmune disease or illnesses and inflammation that don't resolve when they leave some plants in their diet, that is a very viable strategy to go full carnivore. And I think that full carnivore diet is viable for nearly every human on the planet, biologically or at least biochemically. But I also admit or I, I suggest that it doesn't have to be that strict for all people and appreciation of the fact that animal foods are incredibly nutrient rich and that plant foods can be toxic. And if we're going to include plant foods in our diet, we should have some sense of the relative toxicities of those. That I think is really one of the take home messages. In Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seem Lund, and our guest today is Dr. Paul Saladino. Paul is a functional medicine practitioner and an MD who talks about the science and application of the carnivore diet. Paul, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we uh, talked a few months ago. Uh, so what's, what have you been up to since that time? I wrote a book. <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a 110,000 word book, which awesome. if listeners know that's about 400 pages. So somewhere between 350 and 400 pages, depending on how many words per page, but we're trying to make it more condensed, but I wrote a, I wrote a pretty comprehensive book. It's been a fun process, but it's been really challenging. Yeah. Yes. And the book is going to be titled the, the carnivore code. Am I right? Yes, The Carnivore Code. And the subtitle is Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's definitely like a very uh, controversial topic. And, yes. Uh, like, uh, you know, o o over, the, over the last, let's say, two years or a year and a half, the carnivore diet has become like a pretty popular and uh, it's kind of, you know, kind of put, it's put... Uh, alongside with things like a keto diet and a vegan diet and a paleo diet and uh, those different types of diet and it's kind of making its uh, mark uh, in the scene. So uh, what 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 what's like some of the biggest let's say misconceptions that that have been refuted over this time period? You know, people are learning more and more about the science of how it actually works because initially it sounds it sounds pretty crazy and dangerous, but uh, if you look more into the details, then you can see that it actually uh, it's, uh, it has some valid applications and it definitely has science backing it up. So what are maybe some of the, let's say, the last, last, last the misconceptions that you've um, managed to uh, break over the, over the year and a half or something? Well, you're a great question. When I first heard about the carnivore diet myself, I thought it was crazy because I too was a part of conditioning and the functional medicine sphere and these types of places which really teach the value of plants and teach the central nature of plants in a healthy diet for healthy gut microbiota for all sorts of applications polyphenols phytonutrients and so the notion that perhaps we could or should discard plants in favor of an entirely animal-based diet struck me as a little bit ludicrous in the beginning too but i was I was very fascinated by the stories that I'd heard of people getting better from autoimmune disease and diseases that didn't seem to have other good fixes within Western medicine, things like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or uh, in the case of Michaela Peterson, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, some sort of other inflammatory arthropathy in the case of Jordan Peterson, uh, et cetera, et cetera, eczema, psoriasis. And that really piqued my attention because 
in general, throughout my medical training, those have been the diseases that have been most interesting to me and the diseases for which I think we don't have the, any real ability to affect positive change from a Western medical model. We know that the medications that we use for these, for these diseases are not that good. They have tons of side effects and we're not correcting the root cause. And so throughout my education and exploration of functional medicine ideas and et cetera, I'd always been interested in things to reverse autoimmune disease. If we can move that needle, if we can affect change at a very fundamental level of autoimmune disease, we're really onto something. And there are multiple interventions that have been shown to do that. And the carnivore diet is just one of them, but the carnivore diet quickly became the one that I was most fascinated with. Now, I'll just add that there are some people who report that a vegan diet has helped their autoimmune disease. And mm -hmm. certainly people have had improvements in autoimmune disease with a ketogenic diet or a paleolithic diet. And there are lots of reports of people having reversal or improvements in autoimmune disease with a carnivore diet. Well, what do all of these diets have in common? They're all kind of elimination diets. So mm -hmm. I think that what we know is that food is a big lever, right? right? Whatever sort of religious affiliation, quote unquote, we choose to espouse with regard to food, it's very clear that food is a big lever. And I've said widely before that I really appreciate anyone who makes a, an intentional conscious choice with regard to food and diet. And I think that that's the first step toward uh, health. And what I'm most interested in is understanding the nuance of why vegan diets work sometimes, why a carnivore diet works, why a ketogenic diet works, why a paleolithic diet works. Some people may see a carnivore diet as an extreme, but for me, I don't, I don't really view it that way. And I don't see vegan and carnivore as as two ends of a spectrum, I see them both as intentional dietary choices, which exclude some foods and include others, and both of which have applications in the space. Mm -hmm. Having said that, as I dove into the research regarding a carnivore diet and my personal previous experiences with a vegan diet and all of what I've learned and sort of gathered over many years of nutritional education and functional medicine education, et cetera, et cetera, and this whole deep dive in the carnivore diet is that I have come to believe strongly that a carnivore diet is the most viable, long-term, powerful elimination diet there is. It's better than a vegan diet because of the, the presence of anti-nutrients and potential immunologic uh, triggers on a vegan diet and the lack of bioavailable nutrients when we exclude animal foods. But we can talk about that in a little bit. Your original question was, what have I learned over the last year and a half with a, as my focus has been on a carnivore diet and I've dove into that sphere. Well, there are so many nutritional dogmas that are challenged by a carnivore diet. The need for fiber, for, for pooping, uh, fiber in the microbiome, uh, the value of polyphenolic compounds or the, the lack of value of polyphenolic compounds, the potential downsides of polyphenolic compounds, um, the, the myriad uh, the myriad plant toxins that we encounter in plants and how they might be affecting us negatively. The fact that red meat is associated with cancer and heart disease and a shorter life. There are so many pieces of this equation that the carnivore diet just challenges head on that it's been a really fun journey. And I talk about all of those in my book. I, I address every single one of those head on because I've really come to believe that none of those are true. So if there's some of those aspects that you think might be more interesting to your listeners, I'm happy to dive into those specifically, but mm -hmm. there are so many things about 
mainstream nutritional ideology that are challenged directly by research or thinking around a carnivore diet that it, it just, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's iconoclasm at the highest level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree with you on that. There are many reasons why diet work, diets work, and uh, there are many different ways of going about it. Uh, but yeah, some of the commonalities amongst these successful diets is that you know yeah they they uh, enable the person to you know lose some weight, establish a better body composition. Uh, they may help to you know fight some of the autoimmune issues, and also like generally <laughs> eliminating some of the uh, you know the uh, you know dangerous foods that cause inflammation and those things so yeah that you can even you can even see an improvement in your health with things like uh, eating a calor calorically restricted twinkie diet and the donut diet exactly. but, but uh, exactly. you know it's it's not necessarily uh, the best for long term and uh, yeah you definitely like would want to eat like eat like a whole foods based diet but yeah like yeah, you can even see some results on like a suboptimal diet whether it's the most best thing depends on the person and depends on yeah like what's their you know other lifestyle factors and and so on yeah you bring up a great point there i want to emphasize that so the listeners are aware in humans what we see is that overfeeding of mixed macronutrients that is specifically carbohydrates and fat together produces inflammation and mm -hmm. this really shouldn't come as any surprise this is probably the roots of insulin resistance yeah. at the level of the mitochondria which i know you you're very familiar with when the mitochondria receive too much energy input when they have too much substrate for energy they appear to change the reactive oxygen species environment of the cell and signal to the cell, hey, we've got too much energy, become insulin resistant. Yeah. That's, that's probably how insulin resistance happens at one level. There are other things that appear to be able to cause it as well. But in terms of a macronutrient perspective, or I should say a caloric perspective or an energetics perspective, when we overload our body with mixed macronutrients, that is a combination of carbohydrates and fat together, and I'll, I'll clarify that in a moment, the mitochondria just kind of put the brakes on and they say, hey, we're going to become insulin resistant. Yeah. Now, that can happen really regardless of what we're eating. I, I really believe that it's kind of possible to become insulin resistant if we just give our mitochondria, even whole foods, yeah, excess yeah. carbohydrates and fat. And we've seen that in studies that overfeeding with mixed macronutrients will create inflammation, will create metabolic dysfunction in humans. Mm -hmm. Most of us, if we're eating a whole foods diet, don't get to that point because our satiety mechanisms kick in, which is probably why processed food is so damaging for humans. It, it short circuits all those satiety mechanisms and it's much easier to over calorie fill an organism with all of those macronutrients. Hmm. But what's quite interesting, as you point out correctly, is that even if you're eating food that appears to be processed or it clearly is processed and not quote unquote healthy or whole food, when we do the reverse, when we create a caloric deficit, things get better. The inflammation can go down. Uh, insulin resistance can improve because suddenly our body is not calorie and nutrient or at least calorie and um, energy substrate overloaded and the brakes come off. Mm -hmm. So that's an improvement. And that is a unique thing. And people will, then people, you know, like Lane Norton will say, oh, see, it's all calories in, calories out. <laughs> it doesn't matter. All of the benefits of these diets are due to caloric restriction which I think is a gross oversimplification and right. does it all a great injustice to miss the nuance there. Yeah. But 
what has been shown with Twinkie diets, with donut diets is that, yeah, caloric restriction can improve insulin resistance. That is based on, or that has arisen because of nutrient overfeeding or energetic overfeeding. And as you point out, most people would realize quickly, that's not a good long-term diet because it's completely micronutrient deficient. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's important to point out that if we're going to do a diet, it needs to have enough micronutrients. And for some people, having a caloric deficit is a value. But what's very interesting for me is when we can get improvements in insulin sensitivity and inflammation and not have a caloric deficit. Some people don't need to lose weight. Some people don't need to have a caloric deficit. They actually need to have excess calories. And as I hinted at earlier, I think there are other things that can cause inflammation besides energetic overfeeding. This would be things like um, triggering leaky gut by antigens in the gut, whether it's plant antigens, like I might suggest, or uh, overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria, whatever is going to trigger opening of the tight junctions in the gut, it appears that systemic inflammation can also trigger some degree of insulin resistance. So there are multiple things that can trigger insulin resistance, and we kind of need to target whatever uh, might be triggering that in us or the people that we're treating very specifically and know what tool we're using for those. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone agrees that long-term Twinkie diets or donut <laughs> diets are a good thing. And I think that Lane and others' assertions that the benefits of a carnivore diet are due to exclusively caloric restriction are, again, oversimplifications because there are many people who are eating such diets who are not calorie restricting, who are still seeing improvements in autoimmune disease. So there's some interesting yeah. nuance there. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like, and uh, e even in like studies where calorie restriction has been shown to like extend lifespan and be healthy for you, uh, it, it only works if it's uh, done without malnutrition. Like if you become malnourished, then it's not going to work. It's, uh, you know, depleting your body from these essential nutrients that you need. And if you're kind of spending your budget, so to say, your daily calorie budget on uh, nutrient deficient foods, then you're kind of going to like miss out on some of the key essential nutrients that your body needs. So you have to kind of be, be very careful with uh, how you spend your calories in the sense of how many, how many micronutrients per calorie are you getting. And uh, yeah, arguably it's just the, the, you know, most, most, most of the bioavailable forms of nutrients uh, come from primarily animal sources. There's no like real argument about that. Yes, I agree completely with you. And that's my problem with vegan diets and Twinkie diets and donut diets Without sounding overly critical, I will say that though I think a whole foods plant-based diet or a vegan diet is, is clearly superior to a, to a donut diet or a, a Twinkie diet, I think that all three of those instances will lead to nutrient deficiency long-term. A vegan diet probably will last a little longer before frank nutrient deficiency develops, but I think that all three of those options are micronutrient poor, micronutrient inadequate. And that's my fascination with a carnivore diet, as you're, as you're suggesting. When we look at where the actual micronutrients we want in our body, in our life are, they are generally concentrated in animals. That's not true across the board. There are some nutrients in plants, but then we get into these discussions of what is the relative bioavailability of nutrients in, in plants versus animal foods. And one of the things I discuss in the book is that if you actually look at all of the vitamins and minerals that we know of as humans, certainly we can't ever know everything about nutrition. But in 2019 or nearly 2020 right now, we, we know a lot. And of all the vitamins and minerals that we're aware of, we can get all of them from animal foods, plus mm -hmm. extras that are not found in plants. And the, the reverse is not true. 
we, we really cannot get all of the vitamins and minerals that humans need to thrive from plant foods. So that is a very interesting inequality to me and says, wow, if we eat animals nose to tail, which is how I advocate eating a carnivore diet, and we can talk about that as well, we can really get all the vitamins, all the minerals we need, and we don't need any plants. And then on top of that, there are these special nutrients in animals that are not present at all in plants or in any appreciable quantity. I'm talking about things like creatine, carnitine, carnosine, taurine, these nutrients that just are really magical animal nutrients that plant-based dieters miss out on. And again, I don't mean to draw this black and white comparison between vegan carnivore. There is some nuance that we can discuss around omnivory versus mm -hmm. carnivory, but that, that the, the incredibly rich nature of animal foods in terms of micronutrients is a point that's very hard to overlook. Yeah, yeah, I agree that, you know, I, I would be a, really believe that like a, the average person would see like an improvement in their health if they were to go like on a plant-based or a vegan diet in the short term, like the elimination of the other foods, as well as like experiencing some calorie restriction as a way of, as from like this novel way of eating. And it's definitely like beneficial uh, for uh, most people in the short term. But yeah, probably in the long term, they may, may develop some uh, nutrient deficiencies, which is why I believe, yeah, like definitely implementing some animal foods is a, is uh, almost, it's, it, makes, it makes it like for the average person who doesn't pay much attention to their nutrition, it makes it that much easier for them to gain these nutrients and to not become deficient. Yes, and at a very high level, that's one of the messages that I share in the book. I, I try not to be dogmatic. I think over the last year and a half or, um, or so that I've been deep in this carnivore space and researching all of this and exploring it for myself, I've, I've softened a little bit and I offer options in the book about being carnivore-ish. Mm -hmm. I, I eat a carnivore diet. I don't eat any plants, nor have I for the last year and a half plus. But for people who want to include some plants in their diet, I at least offer my opinion of what might be considered a plant toxicity spectrum. And mm -hmm. so at a very high level, part of the thesis that I advance in the book is that, as you're suggesting, number one, animal foods are the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. Animal foods are clearly the best foods on the planet. And correlated with that, or to complement that, is the notion that if we include animal foods in our diet with some appreciation for a toxicity spectrum in plants, that is selecting the plants that are less toxic for us in general, we will thrive. And mm -hmm. I don't think everyone needs to cut out every single plant. I think that's a viable strategy. But for reasons of a convenience or cultural enjoyment, I don't think it has to happen. I think for some people who have severe autoimmune disease or illnesses and inflammation that don't resolve when they leave some plants in their diet, that is a very viable strategy to go full carnivore. And I think that full carnivore diet is viable for uh, nearly every human on the planet, mm -hmm. um, biologically or at least biochemically. But I also admit or I, I suggest that it doesn't have to be that strict for all people and appreciation of the fact that animal foods are incredibly nutrient rich and that plant foods can be toxic. And if we're going to include plant foods in our diet, we should have some sense of the relative toxicities of those. Mm -hmm. That I think is really um, one of the take home messages in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Because like uh, we, we, you, you said it earlier that we've been fed this idea that 
you know, all plants are good for you and you need to eat all the vegetables as much as possible and, you know, avoid the, uh, avoid the fats, avoid the meat, because those are the unhealthy foods, which kind of, you know, baffles, or it may be, it may become very uh, intimidating for uh, the people who aren't aware of these, you know, anti-nutrients as well as uh, the other uh, side effects of eating like a predominantly plant-based diet and, and so on. So it's definitely shocking <laughs> for a lot of people. But uh, what a, let's, maybe let's go start uh, to de- debunk some of the, uh, uh, the misconceptions about eating like an animal-based diet and meat. Uh, so maybe let's start with like saturated fat and cholesterol. Are, aren't those, you know, been villainized for decades already? Yes, absolutely. Um, what's so interesting about saturated fat is that there's saturated fat in plant foods. And <laughs> just so people understand, saturated, unsaturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, just have to do with the number of double bonds between carbons in a fat backbone. And there are different lengths of fatty acid molecules, but um, generally the, some of the most concentrated forms of saturated fat are plant foods, specifically coconut and palm oil, um, have more saturated fat than really any animal food that I'm aware of. I'd have to pull out the numbers with palm oil and butter, but um, coconut oil is almost 90 or at least 85% saturated fat. And I'm not aware of any animal foods that are, that are that high in saturated fat. Regardless, most of the data regarding saturated fat that originally vilified this, this molecule that is essential for human life that we make in our bodies was from Ansel Keys in the 1960s and the Seven Countries study. And most of the listeners will know the story here, but basically it's, mis- it's misinterpreted, poorly done, cherry-picked epidemiology. Ansel Keys used a number of um, countries and looked at the amount of saturated fat consumption. He correlated that to blood cholesterol levels, and then he correlated that to rates of heart disease. Well, if you only choose the countries that fit your hypothesis, it may, it, you can make a line that looks like there's a real relationship there. But as I'm sure everyone listening to this will know, epidemiology can only tell us about correlation and speaks nothing about causation. What, what was quickly realized after Ansel Key's research, though unfortunately not quickly enough, was that he left out a lot of countries that didn't fit his hypothesis as well. There are many countries that can be surveyed from an epidemiologic perspective that show no correlation between the amount of saturated fat they eat and the incidence of heart disease. And what happened in the 1960s, unfortunately, with the beginnings of the diet heart hypothesis, which was that saturated fat leads to more cholesterol in the blood, leads to heart disease, was that the American Heart Association got on board. And then there was a lot of funding for the American Heart Association from Procter and Gamble and other agribusiness companies that were making unsaturated vegetable oils and grain-based foods. And most of us know the story, which has been told by Nina Teicholz and Gary Taubes in their books, uh, Big Fat Surprise and Good Calories, Bad Calories, respectively. A lot of this was really just industry influence and really badly misinterpreted epidemiology. Since that time, there have been multiple epidemiology studies showing no correlation between saturated fat and heart disease. And many studies have shown the complete reverse Mm -hmm. of that. It's it's extremely striking. And then interventional uh, studies have corroborated the same thing. Um, When we look at meat or the incidence of, um, in, or the occurrence of inflammation 
with the consumption of meat. We just don't see it. There are multiple interventional studies in which people are eating higher saturated fat diets or higher meat-based diets because presumably the, the, the criticism of saturated fat is that it's animal saturated fat that is causing problems. But when we actually look at interventional studies, and there are multiple studies which show this, when people replace carbohydrates in their diet with meat, and there's specifically an interventional study that I can pull up and give you the name of, this is they, people replaced um, a significant amount of carbohydrates every day with half a pound of red meat. At the end of the study, which I believe was six weeks long, their inflammatory markers were, were lower. There was an improvement in inflammation when they did this. So when we look at actual interventional studies, we see an incredibly different story arise. It's, it's just so, so wrong for, for people to, to suggest that meat is in any way inflammatory or has ever been shown to be inflammatory because it's just never been demonstrated in any studies. And right. with regard to the, um, the saturated fat story, gosh, I mean, that is really just, as I suggested, badly done epidemiology, extremely misleading science, <laughs> probably motivated by um, business interests. Yeah. Uh, super, super scary stuff. So there was a, um, there was a trial of uh, 42 countries. So this is a, uh, an epidemiology study um, from Europe in 2016, um, which said the most significant dietary correlate of low cardiovascular disease risk was high total fat and animal protein consumption. So that's the reverse of what Ansel Keys would say. That, <laughs> yeah. that, and that's a big study of 42 countries in 2016. Yeah. So the more animal fat and protein people eat, the less cardiovascular disease they had. Of course, the epidemiology is, is only used to generate hypotheses, but as I suggested, the interventional studies do not show that red meat is inflammatory in any way, shape, or form. And they actually show quite the reverse, quite the reverse. Yeah. And then um, I'll, I'll pause I'll, I'll, and, and let yeah, you comment. I, yeah, I want to add, like, you know, the epi epidemiology only takes into account uh, what else you eat with the meat. <laughs> like, exactly. uh, like the average person, they're not on a carnivore diet or they're not even on a keto diet or a paleo diet. They're eating, you know, the breads, the sugars, the uh, di you know, processed uh, carbs uh, with the meat inside a hot dog bun and so on. So it's not like that the meat itself is causing the problems. It's the, like you said, mentioned that the inflammation and the oxidative stress, that is more of like a more bigger cause of, of heart disease and uh, that's why you may see like a higher inf inflammatory you know uh, scenario just because of eating uh, these other inflammatory foods with the meat not specifically uh, the meat itself and then if you go on like a, if you reduce the carbs and the processed foods and you swap it out with meat then you actually see the opposite because you're reducing the inflammatory load on your system Exactly. So that other study I referenced is titled Increased Lean Red Meat Does Not uh, Intake Does Not Elevate Markers of Oxidative Stress and Inflammation in Humans. And as I suggested, they had um, lower markers of inflammatory, mm -hmm. uh, of inflammation, including uh, urinary F2 isoprostane, the creatinine ratio, uh, leukocyte counts, C-reactive protein, um, serum amyloid A, um, and other uh, plasma fibrinogen, et cetera, et cetera, and markers of DNA damage. So increasing red meat was beneficial for those people. And this really shouldn't come as any surprise. Evolutionarily, that makes complete sense, right? Mm -hmm. These are probably, these are almost certainly the foods that we've relied upon 
as a staple throughout our evolution, why would they cause inflammation in us? For, for people to suggest that is an evolutionary incongruity. And really, the burden of proof uh, is on them to show that, it is, that, it, that, that it, this is the case, that animal foods are harmful. And it's, just, it's not been demonstrated in interventional studies, but people just want to keep showing, um, they just want to keep showing epidemiology, which is so misleading. There's just one more study I'll mention for people effects of plant and animal high protein diets on immune inflammation biomarkers, a six week intervention trial. In this trial, um, they had one group that did a very high, both groups did high protein, so 30% of the diet from protein, and one group did entirely high um, plant protein, another group did entirely high animal protein, and at the end of six weeks, they compared inflammatory markers between them, and there was no difference, meaning that there was no increase in inflammation relative to a completely plant-based diet in, uh, in this study on these people who I believe were diabetics or at least had metabolic syndrome. Interestingly, in that study, though it didn't reach statistical significance, there was a trend toward calprotectin being increased in the plant protein heavy diet, calprotectin being a measure of gut inflammation Hmm. as kind of a a suspicion is all of that plant protein bringing with it lectins or other things that are causing inflammation in the gut. But yeah, it's as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, uh, epidemiology is incredibly misleading and that's what's been used to make the case against saturated fat for so, so long. Yeah. Um, should we talk, should we talk about I wanna, I wanna, a bit? Yeah, I totally agree with you. <clears throat> and I want to just add like this caveat, this massive caveat that, you know, let's say like the average person may hear from news, you know, this recent, recent study showing that, that uh, they say that meat consumption isn't linked with mortality and cancer and heart disease and so on. So the message they may get is that, oh, I'm going to eat all the meat that I want now. Like I'm not going to restrict myself anymore. And they may continue to eat like these meat-based uh, plus uh, processed food diet. And uh, that's why they still may see like a, a decline in their health and they may get sicker and they may get fatter because of eating this mixed diet. So you have to kind of eliminate the inflammatory components of the diet in order for the meat-based diet to be healthy for you. Because I believe that if you were to continue eating like a higher saturated fat content with, uh, you know, processed carbs and grains and those things like, you know, bagels plus bacon and, uh, and uh, processed meats and those things, then you would still see like a negative effect on your health because of this combination of those foods. Uh, so we definitely have to like... Uh, make sure that you you go on if you do increase your meat consumption then it has to be somewhat somewhat of a like a less uh, inflammatory uh, situation yes the context the context is hugely important as we discussed earlier um and maybe i'll just emphasize this for listeners the combination of carbohydrates and fat is probably not something we would have encountered much evolutionarily and mm. so to eat a lot of saturated fat with a high carbohydrate diet, especially a high grain based carbohydrate diet, including things like bagels or other carbohydrates that are almost certainly packaged in a way with antigens like gluten or other things which have been shown repeatedly to open tight junctions in the gut is probably not a good idea. Um, and, and that as you are suggesting, as I would agree, eating a carnivore diet is not eating hamburgers with a bun. And, you know, I mean, in colloquial terms, it often gets confused, right? Mm -hmm. I saw this over Thanksgiving. It was a a celebrity couple and um, the man was saying, you know, my wife is, is more of a, 
is more plant-based and I'm a carnivore. I'm going to have ribs with my bread. And I was like, you're that's, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what people think of when they think of a yeah. carnivore diet is, um, Oh, that guy was a carnivore. He ate a lot of meat and he also ate a lot of bread and then he had a heart attack or, you know, it's, that's not the same thing, right? There's nuance yeah. here. The devil's in the details. And it, often as we've, I guess, touched on multiple times now, meat gets blamed for the things that are eaten with it. And yeah. that's a problem. And that, that really limits our understanding from a scientific perspective because that's not a very good experiment. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, oftentimes it's like the uh, stereotypical uh, dad who drinks beer and uh, eats meat, <laughs> which is exactly the worst combo. It's, it's a pretty bad combination. And in that case, it's not that the meat is bad. It's that, yeah. you know, hey, that, that the combination of those two things is not is not is not good for humans and it's not something we would have done evolutionarily so yeah, yeah that's true uh what about uh, iron and homocysteine from meat oh okay so two things there so uh heme iron is quite interesting i talked about this recently i have a podcast as well it's called fundamental health and james wilkes was recently on chris cresser on joe rogan with chris cresser and they had a debate And I did a response to that. In that debate, you know, Wilkes threw out the notion that heme iron was toxic just as if it was mm -hmm. uh, established fact when it really is not. Heme iron is basically the form of iron that our body wants. It's an iron atom encased in a porphyrin ring, which is how it is in hemoglobin. And that iron in the center of the porphyrin ring is what oxygen binds to uh, in a hemoglobin molecule on a red blood cell to carry oxygen in our body, a pretty vital function. So the, that molecule, heme iron, iron encased in a porphyrin ring is so valuable for humans that we have a special transport mechanism for it in our gut. So just intuitively, why would something like that be harmful for us? It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if we, if we choose not to eat heme iron in our diet, then the incidence of anemia, especially iron deficiency anemia, is much higher. And we know that vegans and vegetarians are much more likely to be iron deficient because non-heme iron uh, is much harder for the body to absorb. That is iron that is essentially mm. naked without a porphyrin ring. We really are looking to absorb heme iron exclusively. We can absorb a little bit of non-heme iron, but it's pretty hard to get across the membranes of yeah. our body. And so what has been levied against heme iron is the fact that it causes GI cancer or has been associated with GI cancer. Well, unfortunately, what's never expressed to people is that those experiments with heme iron were done only in calcium deficient rat models. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because mm -hmm. especially even in the even in the rodent models, when calcium is given back to those animals, when they're given a calcium replete diet, there's no increase in colonic adenocarcinoma or there's no incidence in gastrointestinal cancer uh, progression Well, there's no increase in gastrointestinal cancer progression in those animals when the, there's enough calcium in the diet. So this is really a red herring of an argument. It doesn't make any sense. It's, heme iron has never been directly shown to be dangerous to the gut directly. The other arguments around heme iron are that it can form N-nitroso compounds. This gets into a little bit of complex chemistry, but <clears throat> nitroso compounds are nitrogen bonded to oxygen in a variety of ways. There's NO, Um, there's NO minus, which is the nitrosyl ion. Uh, there's NO is nitric oxide. There's NO2, which is nitrate. There's NO3, which is nitrite. I may have those two mixed up. I need to confirm that. One of them is nitrate, one of them is nitrite. But 
when um, iron is complexed in the porphyrin molecule, it, it does interact with other atoms uh, from a general chemistry perspective. And people are concerned that it could make N-nitroso compounds. And in fact, it does appear to make N-nitroso compounds. But what is so interesting here is that the N-nitroso compounds produced by meat uh, or produced by heme iron are, are not N-nitroso compounds that have been associated with any type of cancer progression in animals. There's nuance here. So this would be nitrosyl thiols and nitrosyl ions. Those are the ones that are produced in response to meat. And those have not been associated with cancer in animal models. There are other types of N-nitroso compounds that are not the same species. But again, the devil's in the details here. And this level of general chemistry is quite detailed. Mm -hmm. um, those are dimethylamines. And dimethylamines have been associated with cancer progression in animal models, but dimethylamines are not produced um, from heme iron or meat consumption or the cooking of meat. So it's, it's, very, it's very misleading for people to be told that these things are dangerous about meat because this is not, this, people are not being told the full story and the nuance here is, is significant. It's yeah. quite complicated, yeah. But I talk about all this in my book and um, the fact that the N-nitroso compounds that are produced from meat are not the same as the ones that have been shown to be damaging in humans. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a segue to meat and red meat and cancer, which, um, as we know, has been hotly debated. <laughs> in 2015, the IARC, um, so the International Association on uh, Cancer Research, came out with that controversial decision that labeled red meat as a class 2A carcinogen. But yeah. if people have heard David Clurfield talk about this, he was one of the people that was actually on that panel that 2015 IARC report was um, really, really interesting the way that they, they selected the studies. So they had over 400 studies to choose. They only selected 14 of them, all of which were epidemiology, ignoring all of the interventional studies in animals, um, which did not show any increased incidence of cancer with feeding of meat of any type, bacon, pork, yeah. uh, chicken, or red meat. And the IARC only selected 14 epidemiology studies. Of the 14, eight showed no association between cancer and red meat consumption. Six showed uh, an association, but only in one of those six was it statistically significant. So out of the 14 studies, only one showed a statistically significant association between red meat and the incidence of cancer. And from an epidemiology perspective, that is a very large amount of data arguing against any association between red meat and cancer. And yet the IARC said that red meat was a class 2A carcinogen. It's just a very poor yeah. uh, demonstration of science. If you look in detail at that one study out of the 14 that showed there was an association between red meat and cancer, what you find, it was done in Loma Linda. So it was yeah. done on Seventh-day Adventists, number one, who are a group of people associated with a religion who that, that preaches veganism, plant-based lifestyles, vegetarianism. And those who deviate from such a lifestyle are much more likely to have an unhealthy user bias. Right. When you are a part of a culture that is preaching sort of uh, temperance with regard to consumption of meat, uh, anyone who varies from that is much more likely to smoke and drink and do other unhealthy behaviors. So it's quite complicated how to tease all that out from epidemiology. And I suspect that in that one study, that showed an association between red meat and cancer, we're looking at all the things that you and I were talking about earlier, all of the other unhealthy behaviors or unhealthy foods that are coming with the meat. But yeah. if you look at the 
entirety of the data regarding red meat and cancer, both interventional and epidemiology, there's no clear link. And that's what the Nutrarex study said earlier this year in the Annals of Internal Medicine. You, I think you referenced this um, earlier in our talk. And that was a reappraisal from a different group of researchers using, using a scaling model and actually incorporating interventional studies. But that one, that group of researchers then said, yeah, there's really no association between red meat and cancer. And of course, why would there be? Why would something that we've been eating for 3 million years of human evolution cause us to develop cancer in our gut? It just doesn't make sense. And right. there's really no good data to support it. But what we see here over and over, and this is why the carnivore diet is so interesting for me to be a part of researching and sharing the data regarding, is that we've just been misled. It's, there's a lot of data out there and it's very hard for people to interpret it on their own. And so it, it just depends on who is showing us the data. So I'm yeah. doing my part to show the other side of the data to show, hey, look, most of what we've been told about animal food being bad for us is based on very badly done epidemiology. And when we look at the interventional studies, they just don't to hold up to, uh, to snuff. Yeah, you can, you can basically find any claim or, you know, you can find any study saying any claim in, in, the, uh, in PubMed or whatever. Like, they tend to be pretty conflicting and contradicting each other. And it's usually dependent upon, like, yeah, how do, how do these scientists interpret the results and how do they try to bend some of the, the, the rules, so to say. So it's a very, like, it's, it's, you have to take everything with, like, a grain of salt and, uh, yeah, try to combine your understanding of, like, the mechanistic uh, principles with with some of the other science that you uh, know about. And it's yeah, definitely for the average person, it's they only hear only like the headlines and uh, they don't really uh, you know, bother looking deeper into this. Yes. But, uh, and I'll just, I'll just add to that, that the epidemiology is conflicting, but when we look at the interventional studies, they generally tell a pretty consistent story, right. but most of what people are offered is epidemiology and they don't, they may not know what epidemiology is or how it's done. And, you're absolutely right. In terms of epidemiology, you can almost find an epidemiology study to say something about anything. And that's why we have to go further to develop hypotheses from epidemiology and look at the actual interventional studies. And when we look at interventional studies in humans, and then if we don't have them in humans, we have to look in animals. It's the best we have. They tell a very different story. And there are lots of studies. One of them I talk about in the book where um, they gave, uh, they induce cancers in rats by giving a cancerous agent and then they feed the rats a variety of foods to see which foods increase the progression of the cancer in the gut and in fact um, none of the meats they gave changed it at all uh, there was no increase in cancer progression with any of the meats and when they gave the rats bacon there was actually a decrease in the incidence of, of the colon cancer in that model so i mean the kind of tongue-in-cheek explanation there is well clearly bacon cures colon cancer but right. uh, you won't you won't hear that yeah yeah that's true uh, what about you know uh, you and i talk about mTOR and igf1 as well quite often so uh, that's that's one of the mechanistic principles that may uh, link higher protein intake and higher meat consumption with things like cancer and uh, accelerated aging so what are your thoughts on that yeah this is a great question i um there are a number of ways that we could um, approach this. Clinically, I work with a lot of people doing a carnivore diet. And though we don't have any fantastic measures of mTOR, we can use IGF-1. And whether or not serum IGF-1 is a very good indicator of overall anabolic status is questionable, but it's one of the best 
you know, markers that I've got. And I will tell you that um, people eating a carnivore diet do not have an elevated IGF-1. In fact, it's usually lower than the average. Mm-hmm. Just like with bone density, with IGF-1, there's, a, there's an, um, a mean and or a central average point, and then the values are reported with a Z-score, which is the number of standard deviations from the mean. Um, DEXA scans will give people an idea of bone density in the same way. You know, you'll get a Z-score, which tells you how many standard deviations you are from the mean in terms of the average bone density of someone age and sex matched for you. And they do the same thing with IGF-1 when they report it in laboratory studies. And what I have seen basically across the board with the carnivores I work with is that IGF-1 levels are below the mean. Mm -hmm. So they're less than average. Um, And that makes sense when we think about the mechanisms of mTOR activation. I think you and I might've talked about this on the first podcast. There are not a ton of studies on this, but there are a couple of really good studies that have been done in cell culture showing that mTOR can be activated by a number of things, right? Leucine, which is an amino acid, appears Mm -hmm. to activate it directly by crossing the cell membrane. It can be activated by IGF-1 and insulin. And insulin is a big one there. And then it can also be activated by exercise. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we think about those four triggers, we know that people who are exercising are not getting cancer. So if we really, if we really wanted to not trigger mTOR, we would never exercise. So there must be more to the story. The, the leucine story is, is quite interesting and has been used by people on both sides of this argument. Um, plant-based advocates would argue that you can get plenty of leucine in, in plants and you can trigger muscle growth. Um, but really what we know is that you can only get that if you, unless you're doing processed pea protein. And so, but then, you know, it, it's almost kind of funny because then people would say, on the, on the flip side, people criticize a carnivore diet and say, oh, you're getting too much leucine. Well, my understanding is that once you move, once you move past the threshold um, of muscle protein synthesis and mTOR activation with leucine, more is, it just, it's like a switch. It goes on or off. And there's a certain amount of leucine that you'd need in a meal to trigger it. And I've seen anything between 1.8 and 2.6 grams uh, of leucine. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Mm, I'm thinking, yeah, about that amount of leucine is what you need to trigger uh, muscle protein synthesis. And so, or am I thinking milligrams? Uh, And it it actually peaks around, uh, you know, three grams. You're not going to see like, you're you're not going to see like an increase progressively uh, higher mTOR signaling from eating like 10 grams or five grams of leucine from a meal. So exactly. you, you, You could even eat like 30 grams of protein, versus, I don't know, 120 grams of protein in one sitting, and you would still get the same amount of mTOR stimulation because your body, go, you, your body kind of self-regulates itself by, you know, exactly. earlier you said, you said that it goes insulin resistant, but in the case of protein consumption, it kind of blocks itself. Of, it doesn't really want to build like additional muscle mass beyond the certain threshold. So that's why if you, right. if, you, if you want to overcome this limitation, then you have to just increase the eating frequency. You just have to start eating more frequently, like six, five, and seven meals a day. But if you're doing exactly. like some, some form of timer eating or fasting, then you're naturally going to limit that and you're going to actually see a drop in your rate of one because of like eating less frequently. And that's exactly what we see is that most people, that, you, that there are so many levers to pull here, right? That you, yeah. can, you can eat a carnivore diet. I eat twice a day, right? And I have some sort of time-restricted eating. And so... I have times in the day when I'm getting, you know, two to three grams of leucine. I'm triggering mTOR and turning it on, and then I'm turning it on a little bit later in the day. And then I have a fasting window, so I'm getting on and off. We know that we yeah. need mTOR on at sometimes and off at others. It's not that we're completely abolishing um, 
any of the competing pathways. We're not abolishing autophagy by eating a lot of protein. We're just turning mTOR on in a very specific way. Yeah. And the other piece of that equation that I want to point out to people is that insulin is the other trigger that everyone forgets about, right? We know that insulin is going to be much lower on a carnivore diet. So you're not going to get a whole lot of mTOR signaling from insulin, though you will get some because there is still a postprandial insulin response, but it's not nearly as high as it's going to be on a carbohydrate-based diet. And so people who criticize a carnivore diet are saying, oh, protein is going to over-trigger mTOR. But as you so well pointed out, it's not about, it's not linear. Once you have a certain amount of leucine, you just turned mTOR on. Well, the people who are criticizing the higher protein diet are, must be eating more carbohydrates. And what's ironic or hypocritical is that they're probably triggering mTOR even more and more frequently yeah. because in the cell culture studies we've seen with leucine and insulin and comparing those two signals to the anab anabolic system in the body, um, insulin triggers mTOR more strongly and for a longer amount of time. And so as you are suggesting, we can use both of these tools however we would like. If we want to get the maximum amount of anabolic response, we may include carbohydrates in our diet, but then we forfeit the benefits of a ketogenic diet and the carbohydrates often bring with them uh, plant toxins, et cetera. But we can also use protein to trigger mTOR if we want a full anabolic signal by eating more frequently throughout the day and doing less time-restricted eating. Or if we want the opposite, uh, as you've talked about uh, extensively, if we want to do some triggering of anabolic stimulus and then having some degree of catabolism and autophagy throughout the day, we can use targeted times of eating and time-restricted eating with protein-based meals like a carnivore diet. So the idea that a uh, protein-heavy diet, like a carnivore diet, is going to trigger mTOR more is again based on a limited understanding of the actual mTOR uh, mechanisms and physiology and completely ignores the fact that insulin appears to be a much um, bigger trigger that lasts longer than protein. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so true. And uh, you, like the fasting aspect is uh, definitely something that uh, I would recommend anyone to do regardless of the diet. And it's, ju it's just that on a, like a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, you just feel much easier to fast and it's more convenient. You get less hungry and it's essentially also going to preserve more muscle tissue if you fast in ketosis and you allow your body to burn its own uh, body fat. Yeah, I think that it's a very powerful tool. What I've noticed specifically for myself is that I'm so much more satiated after eating a carnivore diet mm. that I will only have to eat twice a day. I can't even imagine eating three times a day anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I ate breakfast before we jumped on this call at about 8 a.m. this morning, and I will finish my last meal today at about 2 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So I'll have a six or seven hour eating window today, and that'll be it. And I'll fast before dinner. I don't like to eat dinner. Uh, I'll fast through dinner. I'll fast before going to sleep. But I, I, most days, that's, that just feels good to me. I don't need to eat more than twice a day. And a, something like a six to eight hour eating window feels very easy and very doable. Mm -hmm. um, my goals right now are muscle mass maintenance. If I were trying to gain mass on a carnivore diet, I would eat more frequently right. um, throughout the day. And I would probably increase the eating window and not have a fasting window. But for right now, for me, I feel pretty good with my current body composition. I'm not trying to do that. If I were trying to lose weight, I would go the other direction. I would eat less frequently and I would compress the eating window. And it's just, we have these sharp tools now when we actually understand how it all works and we can leverage them however we want. If we want to gain weight, we can go one direction. If we want to lose weight, we can go the other direction.
Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, the fasting aspect also uh, kind of gives you all the antioxidants you need or all the uh, def- antioxidant defense systems uh, that your body uh, thrives on, like glutathione and NRF2. So you don't, you know, usually people say that the one of the health benefits of eating a plant-based diet is that it's very high in antioxidants, but which is true, but it's not necessarily like required to be eating a bunch of antioxidants to stay healthy. And uh, like your body can actually thrive by uh, creating its own antioxidants from things like fasting and exercise. Well, that's actually a very important point that we should, that we should dwell on for a moment. Um, I talk about this in the book, and this is perhaps one of the more um, contrarian ideas that, that I have shared in the past. I don't think it's exclusively my idea, but it's something that I've beaten the drum regarding multiple times in the past. Um, Plants don't, you know this, uh, but just to clarify for people, plants don't contain antioxidants. They contain pro-oxidants that trigger our NRF2 system in the liver, which is an antioxidant response system. And so plant molecules can increase the amount of um, antioxidants that we have endogenously in the human body. This is what has been termed hormesis. Now I have some problems with this theory um, and I'll, I'll enumerate them here. The first problem with this, this using plants in this way is, as you suggest, there's lots of good evidence that when plants do this, we actually don't really get any benefit. Even though in the short term, it looks like you might get a, sh- a small bump in antioxidant status, um, it, doesn't ha- it doesn't last long term. And there are multiple fruit and vegetable intervention studies whereby people who are not eating a lot of fruits and vegetables are given tons and they compare two groups, one group eating very little fruits and vegetables and one group eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, often more than a pound of fruit and vegetables per day. And at the end of six or 12 weeks, um, markers of oxidative stress, DNA damage, and immune activation are assayed. And time and time again, there are six studies like this. There is no difference between no vegetables or very low fruits and vegetables and a large amount of fruits and vegetables in terms of antioxidant status, suggesting that all of these promised benefits, all of these promised antioxidant benefits from plants don't actually show up in humans. And the point you made is the most important one. By living well, by having enough nutrients in our diet, we can achieve an optimal level of antioxidants without plants. They don't really give us anything, but we've been told they do, right? This is what's been so misleading. So when people hear that I suggest we don't need plants, this is one of the other things they often will say, what about all the polyphenols? And if you actually look at the interventional data, it does not hold up to scrutiny. There's really no evidence that polyphenols benefit us long-term. And it, if we are giving our body enough nutrients, enough micronutrients, that is things like B6, B12, folate, riboflavin, the amino acids needed to make glutathione and other um, antioxidant response enzymes in our body, superoxide dismutase, glutathione peroxidase, et cetera, we will... Um, and we are doing things that are environmental hormetics, like, like um, sunlight exposure, heat and cold and exercise, mm-hmm. we appear to make a completely optimal and adequate amount of antioxidants in our body, our endogenous antioxidants, and plant molecules don't benefit us. What's right. never talked about, and this is a whole another premise in my book, is that by trying to eat all those antioxidants in plants, we're all, also getting all the toxins in plants. So that's, a, that's the negative side of it. But I don't believe in hormesis from plants. I don't think it's actually been shown right. in studies to work long-term. 
Um, in the short term, you can see it in like a five-day trial or a three-day trial, but in the studies that are done for six or 12 weeks, like I'm saying with these interventional trials, there's no change in antioxidant status. I'll just mention a few of these studies for people because they're so striking. The first one is titled Effective Increasing Fruit and Vegetable Intake by Dietary Intervention on Nutritional Biomarkers and Attitudes to Dietary Change, Randomized Trial. In this trial, they chose 19 men and 26 women with a low reported fruit um, and juice and vegetable intake. They had less than three portions per day of fruit and vegetables and juice, and they were eating an average of 70 uh, milligrams of vitamin C per day. And one group continued on their standard diet, and another group had an additional 480 grams of fruit and vegetables per day, which is more than a pound, and 300 milliliters of fruit juice for 12 weeks. And at the end of 12 weeks, what did they find? They said that at the end of 12 weeks, they found that despite increasing plasma vitamin C levels, there was no change in, and I'll read, the, I'm just reading this verbatim, there were no significant changes in antioxidant capacity, DNA damage, and markers of vascular health. And so by increasing all these fruit and vegetables, a pound per day, plus 300 milliliters of fruit juice, there was no change in any of those markers. So for yeah. people to suggest that, uh, people to suggest that there's really a benefit to fruit and vegetables is, is not really shown in the literature at all. Right. It's, it's quite surprising. One more it's, study just to drive up the point home. There's a number here that I talk about in the book. No effect of 600 grams fruit and vegetables per day on oxidative DNA damage and repair in healthy non-smokers. It's essentially the same, uh, the same study, although it's a different study, it's the same intervention and it found the exact same thing. And it's just, it completely right. uh, supports the point that both of us are making here that we can make enough antioxidants in our own body without plants. And I, the concept of xenohormesis, in my opinion, has never been proven. Right. Uh, it, it, like it doesn't really hold water mechanistically as well. And e- even in the space of longevity and uh, lifespan extension, for example, like uh, studies where, you know, the, the idea that aging causes oxidative stress and, uh, you know, increasing your antioxidant consumption mitigates, right. that, mitigates that oxidative stress and therefore you live longer. But that's not that studies don't show that. And uh, yeah, like the, the mechanistic data doesn't also support that. So like even like supplementing higher doses of vitamin E and vitamin C doesn't increase lifespan and doesn't improve uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease or anything like that. It actually may uh, have the opposite effect because your body becomes weaker in a sense because if you take too many antioxidants then you're reducing the beneficial aspect of stress like the stress itself has benefits in small small amounts which is the idea of hormesis and if you're constantly blocking that stress with antioxidants then you're not going to see that benefit and you're going to actually like get sick and uh, weaker and uh, that's why like things like fasting and uh, exercise and saunas and cold they're much more they're much re- more reliable in terms of actually strengthening your body through hormesis and actually stimulating all these antioxidant uh, defense systems but in, yeah. in, in in terms of like the plant uh, plant xenohormesis then i think i think that it might work if it's going to help you to uh, establish like a calorie deficit because calorie deficit itself also upregulates these antioxidant defense pathways and also creates this beneficial hormetic stressor so for, for example if someone is eating uh, more vegetables and more, uh, they're swapping out these higher calorie foods with low calorie vegetables and fiber and these polyphenols, then they're just going to uh, experience more calorie restriction and therefore they, exp- they may see like a benefit from that. 
So in that regard, uh, the xenohormesis aspect uh, can work as long as it's helping the person to experience calorie restriction. But if you're like overfeeding, then I think it's not going to work. <laughs> so that, that's why the, uh, you know, these plant-based diets also goes back to the idea that they work through calorie restriction primarily. And uh, generally, people tend to undereat when they go on these diets. Yes, and I would just mention something for the sake of clarity there. You pointed out a number of things uh, that I want to highlight for the listener. There is a difference between an environmental hormetic and a xenohormetic. And I agree with you that environmental hormetics, uh, sunlight, sauna, cold, um, exercise, these are what we need as humans. Uh, I don't believe in xenohormesis, which is the using of plant molecules to induce more antioxidants in the human body. Like we said, I don't think that works the way we are expecting it to. Reactive oxygen species are a valuable part of signaling in the human body, and we should not be looking to abolish them completely. And the situation you're describing is, is I would not say that's xenohormesis. That's just ketosis because people are in a caloric deficit or um, they, they're going to deplete their liver glycogen stores. And yeah. so that's not the plant molecules causing xenohormesis. That's, that's essentially ketohormesis, as we know. Yeah. When we have ketones in the body, that can also upregulate NRF2 a little bit. I talked about this on a podcast that I did with Chris Masterjohn. At least in the brain, it's quite well established that when we are in a state of ketosis, which we can, we can get into ketosis by eating donuts, if we eat a caloric deficit of donuts, right? Yeah. And so if we're eating a caloric deficit of plants, we can also get into ketosis. And ketones do appear to be what are called mitohormetics in the brain and will increase the formation of um, glutathione and other antioxidant response elements in the brain by themselves. I don't think that's the xenohormetic compounds in plants. I think it's just the caloric deficit and it happens with any, any food in which you do that with. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's true. A uh, good, good point that yeah, you experience like ketosis, even if you're eating like a high carb, uh, yes. cal caloric, calorically restricted diet. So it's almost like a vehicle for uh, ketosis, which leads to hormesis, but you can achieve that with other means as well. <laughs> So it's yes, not like a exactly. one-size-fits-all one solution. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good uh, clarification. And uh, that kind of brings me to this point of like, um, you know, you, you describe these like degrees of being a carnivore and eating an animal-based diet. So what kind of a spectrum uh, should people, like if they're not willing to go all-out carnivore uh, or yeah, like what's the kind of spectrum that you would put people on? So... In the book, I talk about five tiers of a carnivore diet just to give perspective or specific examples of the way that people might progress through it. Tier one is carnivore-ish, which as we discussed briefly earlier in this podcast is a focus on animal foods and an appreciation for which plants might be more and less toxic. That I think is a carnivore-ish diet. Tier two is basic, basic carnivore diet, which some may be familiar, I just eat meat, drink water. That's not my favorite type of carnivore diet by any stretch of the imagination. I think that there's much more to a carnivore diet than eating uh, just meat and water. But for a short amount of time, if people wanted to do that, it's essentially, it can be just a protein sparing modified fast. Uh, tier three is a carnivore diet that might include meat and eggs and shellfish or a few things like that. And then tier four and tier five are what I would espouse as more ideal versions of a carnivore diet that have uh, well-raised meat that's grass-fed, a focus on getting 
reasonable macros. So I recommend about one gram of protein per pound of body weight and about one to one fat to protein ratio and a focus on organ meats with the unique micronutrients there. So I go into detail about all those in the book. In, in terms of tier one, in terms of carnivore-ish, if people are not ready to go for carnivore and give up all of the plants, the most important thing to appreciate as we've discussed, is the value of animal foods and the relative toxicities of plants. So which plants are the most toxic? Well, this is again my opinion, but based on the research I've done and sort of the, the, the space that I'm in, I'll offer it to people in hopes that it's helpful. What I believe to be the most toxic plants are things that are high in lectins and oxalates. Specifically, this would include all nuts, seeds, grains, and legumes. So often on paleo diets, people think of nuts and seeds as okay, but really nuts and seeds are just, uh, they're all seeds. So grains and legumes are seeds, as are nuts and seeds. And all of these have a large amount of lectins in them. And all of these have uh, digestive enzyme inhibitors, phytic acid, things that can interfere with our digestion. So in terms of triggering the immune system and eliminating plant foods, those are the ones that I recommend getting rid of first, in addition to very high oxalate foods like spinach, beets, uh, etc. because I think that the oxalates are a big deal and people should avoid them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the most toxic group. Now, what's interesting about that group is that on ketogenic diets, people often eat a lot of nuts and a lot of seeds. And I think that's a problem for people mm -hmm. because nut flowers, these, these are really not good for humans in my opinion. So uh, I think that yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people can benefit by cutting those things out of a ketogenic diet and trending more toward carnivore-ish. Yeah. yeah the next, it, yeah. I want to add like, it's, it's like you only have like a certain amount of calories you can exactly. per day. And if you're wasting those calories on uh, nuts and seeds or dairy or like dairy is like a gray zone for me, uh, but you know, or dyslectins or grains, then you're kind of missing out on the other potential nutrients that you could get from, uh, you know, things like eggs or meat <clears throat> or fish and uh, those things. Exactly. And as we suggested at the beginning of the podcast, if you exceed your energy threshold, you, it, it appears to create inflammation in humans, right? Yeah. If, we go, if we overfeed, it's not a good thing. So there's a sweet spot for the amount of energy that our body wants and the macronutrients that it's coming from. And if we, if we don't choose the most nutrient-dense foods, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Mm -hmm. Other foods that I think of as toxic um, in the plant kingdom are nightshades. Those are quite high in lectins. These are things like white potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, goji berries, people will be quite familiar with these foods as being at least noted by many in the health space as potential triggering the immune system. I also don't think that brassica vegetables are good for humans. They're so high in isothiocyanates and other um, things that can cause problems with the thyroid that I recommend avoiding brassicas. So these are things like kale, collard greens, um, broccoli, cauliflower. Uh, again, this is kind of a, a radical notion, but those are not my favorite foods at all. And on the other end of the spectrum are foods, plant foods that are probably less toxic for humans. Um, I would think of these as non-sweet fruits, maybe olives, uh, avocado, lettuce, uh, occasional berries. Those would probably be the least toxic plant foods. And often for people, just including a few plant foods makes a carnivore-ish diet much more uh, doable. Again, it's not a ton of plant foods that I would say are, are more benign. And again, the other caveat here is that people could even be sensitive to those. There are salicylates and avocados 
there are definitely um, some oxalates in olives and even some salicylates in olives. And so people could be sensitive to those foods as well and, and may need to eliminate them completely. But within that realm of plant foods, that's at least how I think of the spectrum of foods. I'm not a huge fan of fruit in general. Uh, I think that sweet fruit uh, often is just extra calories without a whole lot of nutrients. We have addressed already um, many of the nutrients people might imagine are in fruit, but I, I don't think fruit is actually that beneficial for humans. Mm. Perhaps from a survival standpoint, we would have eaten it occasionally when it was available, but I think it would have been available very rarely mm. and in only limited amounts. And I don't think it should make up a very big part of our diet. Yeah, definitely shouldn't be like a staple. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Or like a majority of calories. Yeah, like the way I like to see it is that yeah, the majority of a calorie should come from uh, the animal-based foods, which are more nutrient-dense and more bioavailable for, the, for, the, for those nutrients. And you should never think of like uh, plants and vegetables being as like the kind of the main source of a specific nutrient because they simply aren't. <laughs> and and you, you can use plants to uh, increase satiety uh, increase fullness or help you to experience let's say some form of color restriction like we mentioned earlier j just so you know if people eat like some more vegetables with their meat then they like the average in my experience uh, most people would feel uh, slightly more satiated from it and they would just you know be able to uh, experience better body composition from as a result of that which doesn't which doesn't mean that people can't feel you know satiated from a carnivore diet it's just that some people uh, prefer to add like some some form of other uh, foods into the diet which uh, yeah essentially kind of achieves the over overarching goal which is the intake of uh, enough nutrients satiety and kind of establishing uh, caloric maintenance without overeating yeah and th there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack we probably don't have time for it today but the other thing i'll add is that animal fat is incredibly satiating. Yeah. And though it's very calorically dense, I would challenge many listening to this podcast to try and eat non-rendered animal fat and, and watch what happens to their appetite. And by non-rendered animal fat, I mean trimmings uh, or mm. suet from an animal. It's incredibly filling. <laughs> and I, I think that we can use plants for satiety, but it's not my, not my first choice. I would favor, because you and I had talked about this earlier, I would favor using nutrient-rich foods for satiety. And I, I don't know that adding vegetables to a meal is necessarily going to make us feel more full per se. Uh, it's, it's nuanced. I don't think we know for sure. Well, the other thing I would worry about with adding vegetables or one potential downside of adding vegetables to a meal would be the fiber, which uh, can actually decrease the absorption of nutrients in the animal foods we're eating. So that's, again, one of the benefits for me on a predominantly or entirely animal-based diet is that, and we didn't have time to go into this today, but I talk about it all in the book, that fiber is such a negative thing for humans in terms of uh, overall nutrient balance. So I, I, I would personally not recommend trading um, any sort of satiety if, if it were the case, and I, though I'm not convinced it is, I would not trade satiety for decreased nutrients with fiber. I would favor uh, nutrient-rich animal foods predominantly. And I think that if we're getting enough fat with our nutrient-rich animal foods that's not rendered, um, like animal trimmings and actual fat that's on steak, it's going to be very filling for us. People will be quite surprised at how full they are. Most people, when they eat this way, many times they only want to eat once a day if they're not um, incredibly active. It's so filling. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it also depends on the person and like what's their preferences and so on. 
Yes. Uh, but uh, like e- even even the idea that some fiber and anti-nutrients uh, decrease the total nutrient density of a meal, then I think it's not going to be that big of an issue if you're eating, you know, some organ meats because those things will kind of counterbalance any of the anti-nutrients. I would, I would suggest like you're getting like all these massive nutrients from the liver. And uh, in that sense, if you do lose maybe like, I don't know, let's, let's, be, let's be critical and say that if you lose like 20% of those nutrients from to the anti-nutrients, then it's not going to be like a big issue either because you're already exceeding all of your daily requirements from eating that piece of liver. You hope so. You hope so. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't have like any studies to actually compare right, right, these right, things. Right. So <laughs> right, we're just right, both right. speculating. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, but I want all the nutrients. I'm just like, I don't want, I don't want to decrease that at all, but I understand right. it's, it's about preference. And ultimately it's just about helping people get to the point where they can achieve a higher quality of life. And there are lots of steps along that way. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I try not to be dogmatic about it, but I do think it's helpful for people to hear what, what I believe the ideal is. Right. Well, some uh, nutrient deficiencies can also be a hormetic stressor in terms of uh, st- stimulating some autophagy process as well. For example, like uh, zinc, zinc depletion has been shown to induce autophagy in uh, mice. But it's again like uh, all, that, all the time getting autophagy isn't good either. So uh, for exactly. example, if you're, if you're getting autophagy from fasting, then you don't really need any the hormetic signaling from nutrient deficiencies and so on. So it's a very, it's a very nuanced uh, topic and uh, we, you, you can skin the cat many ways. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't want to be zinc deficient myself for sure, because for sure, for sure, yeah. <laughs> we know that we know that testosterone and other hormones don't don't really yeah. work that well when you're zinc deficient. Yeah, but it's just but it's just the idea that uh, yes, you, you don't necessarily need to get like five thousand percent all of your RDAs every day. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> like, yes, like, t- like taking a multivitamin. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's a good idea either. Yeah. And I've I've said this on podcasts in the past, but I think of animals as the ultimate multivitamin. Oh, yeah. Though totally. your point is well taken. Yeah. Totally, totally. So yeah, it's awesome. And uh, definitely, where can uh, people uh, learn more about your book and your work as well? So the best place to find me is carnivoremd.com. That's my website. There's links to everything there. The book is called The Carnivore Code. And there's uh, a link to the book on the website, or they can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to uh, get a landing page for the book. It's available for pre-order now. It comes out in February. I have a podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. People can find that on iTunes. I have a YouTube channel, Instagram. All of those are linked on my website, but they are all carnivore MD. Awesome, that's good. And uh, my last question is like, given that this is, we're recording this uh, at the, one of the last few days of uh, 2019. So what are some of the, maybe like a new piece of advice or habit you wish you implement in 2020? Oh man. <laughs> um, I think for me personally, it's, uh, it's mental work. It's meditation. Uh, the last uh, year and a half has been very stressful for me. Uh, it's been very good. It's been very interesting, but it's just been a lot of work, you know, writing this book yeah. and doing all these things. And I've, I've come to realize that, that my mental clarity and my mental poise is is tantamount is paramount so right. uh, i'm i'm really going to keep trying to focus on meditating a lot next year and i'm hoping that once i get this book done and out i'll be able to get back in the ocean more in the morning and do more surfing um, maybe get a little more uh a little more time in the cold exposure maybe i'll do some cold plunges more often <laughs> yeah that's a form of meditation as well right yeah, absolutely i love <laughs> surfing it's amazing
Yeah, it's good. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for coming to the podcast and uh, we're going to have to do it another time soon. I can't wait. Thanks for having me on, my friend. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.